Good morning, Stefan Sagmeister. Welcome on VH Berries. Thank you. I'm very glad to be with you. A picture is worth a thousand words, and a good meme is worth a thousand pictures. And I would love to know if you were interested in doing memes, in designing them. I am actually not. Uh, I am neither a consumer nor a designer of memes, nor do I believe that a meme is worth a thousand pictures. Uh, I think I'm, I'm completely, utterly out of this extremely short, bite-size kind of information. It's just not, it doesn't appeal to me, neither as a maker nor as a reader or consumer. So I follow nobody online who is a meme generator. But one type of object that you really like are um, cups for coffee, for example. Uh, right now I'm holding a glass of water, but it will be never as cool as the one you did for uh, Espresso uh, Illy Cup. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that uh, as opposed to memes, I am very much interested in objects and in this case, particularly uh, because I'm a very big and frequent uh, uh, espresso drinker. I drink for sure 10 cups every single day. So uh, when uh, Illy, which is one of my favorite coffee companies, asked me to design cups, uh, that was an easy uh, way to say yes. And specifically because they have a, a very, very good program where many artists that I enjoy, some of them having been clients like David Byrne, but I know that the, the person who designed it after me was Ai Weiwei. So there's a lot of people involved who design cups for Illy. So it was, uh, and of course there is carte blanche, meaning as a designer, you can basically do whatever is at your interest uh, when uh, in the connection with a coffee cup. So it was a, a, a an easy yes and I'm also actually quite happy with the, with the end results. Uh, they did a, a beautiful job producing them. This is very ironic because in the promotion videos on your website, for example, we can see the cup uh, completely broken at the beginning and then they slowly uh, reunify together. Well, the whole cup is part of a series that I've been working on for the past couple of years. Uh, which really has to do with long-term thinking. Maybe that's also comes, uh, that has probably something to do with uh, me not being a big fan of memes. I'm, I think, or I'm, I'm convinced <laughs> for my life for sure, is that uh, because of technology, uh, the, our news cycles have become shorter and shorter. Our attention span has become shorter and shorter. And that leads to many people, including many of my friends, having a completely wrong view of the world that we live in. I know so many people that surround me who think that the world is much worse than it's ever been, that we live at the edge of a gigantic catastrophe and things are just much overall are just in a very dire uh, or in a, a very dire situation and if you look at basically every human development that you can look at 
be it the situation of war, be it the situation of politics, be it the situation of uh, of food, being the the uh, in any sort of sense, uh, the world has gotten better. And now, of course, you could say, what are what are the uh, uh, what are your criteria? And I would think that the criteria, the main criteria, we actually all agree on. I mean, all of us would much rather be uh, have something to eat than be hungry. All of us would much rather leave, live in peaceful times than in war times. We'd rather be in a democracy rather than uh, in a live under a dictatorship. We would rather be healthy than, uh, uh, than sick, and we would rather be alive than dead. Now, all of these things have been measured over the past 200 years. There's very, very good data from the UN, from the World Bank, that measures these things. And in all of these things, we are much healthier than we used to be. We have much more to eat than we used to have. There's, we live in much more peaceful times than we used to. We live uh, now, for the first time in the history of humanity, more than 50% of us live in a democracy. Never happened before, ever. So many of those things actually developed very, very well, but you have to look at them from a long perspective. And the reason that sounds so unreasonable to many of us is, of course, the, because the news cycle is so short. And in the short news cycle, only negativity works because negativity, bad things happen very quickly. So they work in a short news cycle, while good things normally develop, become better very, very slowly, which isn't really that interesting to news. I mean, in one of my favorite data points is that you could have run the headline 240,000 people escaped extreme poverty truthfully for the last 25 years. But of course, no, no newspaper ran that because it's a slow decline of extreme poverty. But it's absolutely, if you, I am sure if we would only have a newspaper every 100 years, that would be the headline that we went from in the last hundred years, we went from 90% of people living in extreme poverty to 9%. That is absolutely, utterly phenomenal. And strangely, that is news to most of my friends because the actual news, the newspapers, don't really report that. And so uh, uh, now we finally come back to the Illy Cups. They are also part of this long-term thinking where they actually, the, the curves that you see reflected in the mirrored cup from the, uh, from, the, uh, from the saucer actually also show a positive development. That was a long explanation, sorry. I'll try to be faster with my explanations. Please, Stefan Sagmeister, take your time. And this is very interesting because you believe that the world has never been that great. And I truly believe that it forces you to be very grateful every day. I mean, I think that you'd be definitely have an incredible amount of reason 
to be thankful. That doesn't really mean that we automatically are thankful. But I do believe, and of course, I also know there is an incredible amount of challenges still in front of us, you know, probably, not probably, for sure, global warming being on top of that list. I also believe that we have a better chance of attacking those challenges that are in front of us from a platform of uh, of acknowledgement that we actually came a long way and we have achieved already quite a lot. I mean, I have friends who think that, uh, you know, uh, race relations were never as bad as they are now. They think that the world for uh, uh, the world for colored and black people has never been as bad as it is now. And this is just it's just simply not true. Uh, I've just heard uh, uh, a lovely podcast with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, a uh, scientist uh, who has a very popular TV show called Cosmos, but he's also the head of the Haydn Planetarium of the Museum of Natural History in New York. And he basically just came right out and said, if you are anybody, this is uh, uh, Neil is, uh, is a African-American, he says, if you look any anything like me, or if you have any sort of uh, uh, color in your skin, it's, of course, things are not perfect now, absolutely not, but they have never been better than they are right now. And, and I, I, of course, when you, not just from being a natural optimist, but if you look at the trajectory that humanity has taken over the past I don't know, let's say 10,000 years, you will see that, yes, we often took a wrong turn, uh, turn and we often went down a, a, a wrong path, but there always was a surprising possibility to write that path and get on the right one again. And of course, by definition, any new invention, any new direction will have unforeseen side effects. So, of course, by design, you will have to take care of those side effects, redesign those, write your direction, go onto the correct path again. But if I look at the predictions of catastrophes, even just in my lifetime, you know, when I'm old enough to have lived through the, all that worry about the population bomb, you know, 70s, 80s. Many smart people and many of my friends predicted that the world is basically going under uh, because there's just going to be too many people. That there's just, it's, it's never going to stop. And we will have, I mean, there were crazy predictions of, oh, maybe we should just let those people, people go hungry so that they die naturally. I mean, it was all, it was crazy. And it turned out the problem basically took care of itself just by the fact that the world got richer, that so many people escaped poverty. And if you escape poverty, you have much fewer kids. The UN now and uh, has the UN now predicts that I think we'll reach 
population maximum sometimes in 2070 and then we will it will decline again and then the problem will be what do we do with too few people around and actually this has already started in very developed nations like in Japan like in Singapore the the problem really is the opposite the problem is that uh, there are way too few births there are too few people and in in japan you actually already see the results of that where uh, whole countrysides are kind of abandoned because uh there's no more young people and the old can't really afford to live there so but again i think that we will deal we i think that we've see we've displayed a remarkable intelligence in the past to tackle problems as they present uh, themselves to us. So I'm sure we're going to also tackle the problem of a declining population. In definitive, you are the guru of the LTT, long-term thinking. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I'm the guru of that, but there's a couple of people out there who are, who've done fantastic research who are really the people that I base my uh, much of my many of my visuals on uh, one of them would be Steven Pinker at Harvard or uh, a guy that I was uh, lucky enough to uh, meet a number of times and he's just absolutely remarkable and then uh, I think equally important would be a guy called Max Roser at Oxford University in uh in the uk uh uh yes yeah, so uh but there's numerous others uh uh that have really done proper research what i'm trying to do as a designer is not really do the research but try to see how i can communicate some of that research to audiences that might not otherwise get that And is the fact of being in Mexico City right now a way for you to escape the short news cycle? Well, uh, actually, that is a very, very welcome side effect. Uh, the reason we are in Mexico, though, <laughs> I have to say, is uh, uh, is actually COVID-related because my girlfriend and I went to visit my family in Austria and her family in Poland. It was a, a long, uh, a long planned visit, as you can imagine, after. Uh, not seeing our families for almost two years. For me, that's the longest in my lifespan that I haven't seen and uh, spent time with my brothers and sisters. So we definitely wanted to do that. But right now, the law is that uh, if you're uh, not if you're not a citizen or don't have a green card, and that's the case for my girlfriend, you can't really come back to the United States from Europe. So we have to be two weeks in Mexico City uh, before we can return to the States, which of course is a very, very lovely thing because I love this city. I've spent a part of my last sabbatical here. It's, I would think, probably one of the cities, maybe the most city, the most happening city right now in the world or i would say it's definitely the place where if i walk through town and we live in uh, roma norte if i walk through this place 
and I look at all the fantastic things that are happening in Mexico City, all of these things are new, meaning they've been made in the past five or 10 years, which really means that you can meet all of the people that are responsible for this, which of course creates an incredibly lively scene and we are having dinner every night with some old friends and some new friends and there is just an incredible buzz here, mostly direct, mostly coming from Mexicans, but that buzz also uh, attracts a whole bunch of foreigners who want to be part of that buzz. And uh, it's really, it's really lovely and the different directions that have something to do with ideas, you know, I would say cooking and restaurants, film and uh, video, uh, uh, design, in all directions, but for definitely product, interior and graphics, but also architecture, uh, they all kind of seem to work together and create a scene that's extremely lively and, extre and very, very much enjoyable. This is fascinating because uh, Stefan Sagmeister, you mean that because the buildings are brand new, uh, this is the complete opposite of New York City and Manhattan, where everything has been built centuries ago or in the last decades. Here, right now, you can really meet the owners. And I assume that this new environment and energy for these two weeks have gave you a lot of ideas. Well, I think that the later is definitely true. These uh, weeks have given me a, lo uh, a lot of ideas and uh, my girlfriend and myself, we are working every day quite diligently. We get up very early at uh, 5 or 5.30 and then work until 3 and then go out, uh, you know, see a couple of museums, uh, have dinners uh, uh, with friends. But uh, what I meant was not necessarily that the buildings are new because they're not. Like the buildings are actually in, in Mexico City are very much a mix, mass, uh, a mix and match anything from uh, 19th century Renaissance to Spanish style uh, 19th century to 50s and 60s to uh, modernist, even art deco, all the way to brand new buildings. So it's not actually the newness of the buildings, it's much more the newness of the culture. So I would say all the restaurants, uh, many, 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 the, 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 uh, the, the vast majority of the restaurants are new. The vast majority of coffee places, of uh, bookstores, uh, of stores that sell uh, fashion are new. They've all been developed in the last couple of years. And in that sense, it's not the opposite of New York, but I would say it's the opposite of Rome. If you walk through Rome, which is a gorgeous and beautiful city, and I spent quite some time there, but everything that is good is old. Maybe the, 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 the newest good thing in Rome might be from the 1970s. You know, you might see a Fellini film or you might see some quality 1970s architecture, but the 1970s are now, that's been 50 years ago. So the people who did, who did the good work in the 70s, they are 80 or 90 now, and they're not really meetable in the same way. So that also means that everybody that you meet in Rome right now is completely not responsible for any of the good things. 
And so that's the, that's the total opposite in Mexico City here. And that changes very, very much the vibe of a city. And of course, uh, you see, if I talk to friends in Rome, they say, but don't you love that restaurant? It's, 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 uh, it only cooks very classic uh, Roman cooking, just like, you know, just like our mom did. And I think that is fine and there is a place for that. But as a designer, of course, I'm much more interested in newish things, in somebody. I much more appreciate a dish that has been developed out of tradition, but where the chef or the kitchen has put its own stamp on it, rather than just recooking and rehashing it in the same way as has been done for the past hundreds of years. And I think that uh, I understand people who just want to preserve tradition, but it's not me. And ultimately, it's also not really, not only what doesn't interest me, but also it doesn't really I don't find things beautiful or delicious if there isn't also some newness in there. That doesn't apply for actual old things. Of course, I can go up to the Pantheon and be absolutely delighted by that sort of beauty that's been built 2000 years ago. But I can't stand somebody who builds the Pantheon now and thinks he's doing the world a favor. I think that we, I'm absolutely convinced that we should be creating our own language in architecture, in film, in graphic design, uh, that is reflecting the times that we live in right now. And as a designer, Stefan Sagmeister, I really enjoy your approach because you want to leave uh, the solving problems part to accountants and engineers because you have this ability to delight. I mean, I think that that's a, uh, it's a, a, a wonderful point you're making here is that for so long, I would say specifically within the time from the 1960s, maybe until the early 2000s, design and architecture saw itself as being problem solvers and being basically in the world of functionality solely. And of course, I 100% support the world of functionality. Everything that we design has to function. If it doesn't function, it's not a piece of design. So the truth, however, is, is that in most cases, it's extremely easy to achieve that functionality. If I give you the example of a chair, to create, to design a functional chair, meaning a chair that is comfortable to sit on, is unbelievably easy. I mean, we have hundreds and hundreds of years of research of what is the ideal height, what is the ideal angle of the backrest, what are the ideal materials. I can design 50 functional chairs in a day, it's no problem at all. It's not, it's the problem is too easy to solve. But to design a chair that is functional, 
but at the same time beautiful and relevant to its time, meaning relevant to 2021, is unbelievably difficult. And I just heard actually Jacques Herzog, one of the maybe my favorite arc who runs my favorite architecture firm in the world right now, talk about how difficult it is to design a chair. And he, of course, meant a beautiful chair relevant to 2021, because if you want to do that, then you really fight against the entire history of the chair, which I guess started somewhere in the first cities, my guess would have been, I'm not 100% sure, but my guess would be that would have the first chairs came out of Damascus somewhere five or 6,000 years ago. So, and you've had anything, you have chairs with the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and all the way up through the Renaissance, through whatever, the 19th century Art Deco, the 50s, uh, mid-century uh, to, uh, to uh, 2021. And to create a chair that is relevant as a endpoint to that sort of history, considering how many fantastic minds have already done it, is unbelievably difficult. And a chair like that, if you manage to do that, that chair automatically will delight. Because we will recognize, even non-designers will recognize that this is a current chair that uh, that manages to do that. And I think that uh, the world, actually specifically the design world, is on its way going back there, that it's not enough to just solve a problem, but there has to be a, um, a portion of delight in how that problem has been solved. And we, I think that the problem right now is particularly urgent in things that are online because by the by definition so many of the designers ux uh, ui designers who work for the very large companies doing the very important things see themselves as problem solvers probably come more from an engineering background and the entire testing is only done of how well that problem is solved. But the, the definition of how it's solved is always one of functionality, not one of delight. And I think that the only large company that I'm aware of who really, from the very beginning, put delight into this because the CEO very openly talked about beauty, uh, this of course would be Steve Jobs, is really Apple. And I don't think they do it constantly and uh, it goes up and down, but very clearly there is a delight aspect in numerous functions of the iPhone and you see how it has been embraced by humanity because basically everybody who has a smartphone right now either has, a, either has an iPhone or has a copy of an iPhone. Uh, so it completely, utterly took that world over. And of course, there's uh, numerous reasons like with any complex problems and complex machines. But I'm convinced that one of the reasons of the complete utter takeover of the iPhone, of the smartphone world, is the fact that its creators took beauty and delight seriously.
And concerning the light, tell me about your studio in New York City because you are uh, working on your own, but you also have an organization with uh, Jessica Walsh. Well, actually, the, uh, Jessica and, and myself, uh, we decided about three years ago to separate things. So Jessica really is concentrating on the commercial side of design, promotional, more advertising, more branding related design. But I'm really concentrating on the more, I would say, either personal or more self-generated side of design. That I'm still very much on my side. We're still very much working with clients, but probably with more open-ended briefs and probably in the less functionality dependent area of design. I'll, you know, I'll give you examples like uh, all design lives on some sort of scale. Like, you know, if you look at architecture, a cathedral is extremely non-functional. It doesn't have bathrooms, it doesn't have offices, it doesn't have kitchens, there is no toilets in a cathedral. It's basically one gigantic space for contemplation. While a factory is much more functional. It has all of these things and many, many of the things has to have to function. Now, as a designer, it's much more fun. It's much more interesting to design a cathedral than a factory. There is fewer limitations when you design a cathedral. So I would say that within the world of graphics, I'm now on the cathedral side of designing things. And Jessica is probably more on the factory side of designing things. And in this cathedral, you can pray and take the time with silence. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's I think that uh, even even as a user or as a visitor, I, I much rather spend my time in a cathedral than in factories. So, of course, that also plays a role that obviously I think that that is true for every designer. You want to design the things that are interesting to you as a user as well. That was the reason why when I started the studio in 1993, Uh, we concentrated on album cover designs because music was my second big interest and I wanted to have a way to combine the two design and music. And as we go on, and as I got older, even though music still plays a very, very big role, but I noticed that, you know, I really enjoy going to, uh, going to uh, exhibitions, going to museums. So it shifted. So. Uh, I felt, okay, then let's design exhibitions, let's create large ex exhibitions, the kind of exhibitions that I actually would love to see myself. And uh, I think if that is the, if you're able, and I'm sure, uh, I know that not every designer is able to basically design their own path in that same way, but I always was extremely lucky and uh, was able to design the path. And of course, it leads, if anything, I think that's not just true for designers, that's true for absolutely any job, anything that you can do where you're truly interested in the things that you're doing, you're, the chances that you're going to do that well, of course, are much increased. And, you know, that really led 
to this theme that I've been working on for the past two years about long-term thinking. It's something that I'm interested in and I find ways to express it in design. And these ways can be like the coffee cups that we talked about, but we're also working for, on tunnels that are connecting five hospitals in Canada and we're des redesigning these also with a long-term thinking uh, filter applied or we, we just uh, designed a courtyard uh, for a, a wonderful hotel in Frankfurt uh, or and probably that's the main trajectory what I'm working on right now in Mexico City a second exhibition of these are really reworked paintings that are 200 years old that basically were already around when that data, that 200-year-old data was started uh, to, to be collected. And I'm reworking these 200-year-old paintings, putting new parts, new inserts in them, so that uh, these inserts, if I can describe them, but of course uh, one can look them up very easily on our website, sagmeister.com. Uh, these inserts are from now, the paintings are 19th century. The overall visual impression is as if you've, if you've inserted minimalism into 19th century realism, but the minimalism is actually data, data visualization. So uh, let's say you might have a uh, realistically painted oil painting of a uh, of a 18th century woman and there are three circles inserted into the old painting inserted as new canvases done with new oil paint and the the circles look minimalist but they actually represent female voting rights from the 18th century until now 200 years ago, of course, there was no female voting rights, zero uh, in the 19th century. It just started. And by now, I think every single country that votes has female voting rights. There's only one country in the world out of the 200 that are accepted by the UN as actual countries. There's only one country who doesn't allow uh, women to vote, and that's a very tiny country, it's the Vatican. Stefan Sackmeister, for me, do you have any type of piece of advice as a designer? Because this is fascinating. Design is one of my high value. This is something that I put so much emphasis and importance on. Well, then I would say, uh, The, as you go on being a designer and, and designing, take beauty seriously and make it a goal of every design piece that you do. Because the problem with beauty is it doesn't come around by itself. You actually have to have a goal to make it beautiful. Like this idea that was never meant that way, but many, many architects, many designers felt that this, this uh, slogan, form follows function, means that 
if something functions well, that it is automatically beautiful. That was never how it was meant by Mr. Sullivan, the Chicago architect who actually coined that slogan. What he meant was form follows function in a world in nature where if you look at an eagle fly, that the beauty of his flight comes out of the unbelievably well functionality of his flight. But you have in, in, a, in order for things to become beautiful and functional, you absolutely have to have to put it in as a goal. And this is not just something that I realized. This was something that the original modernists already knew. There is a lecture of Max Bill, the uh, famous Bauhaus alumni, who, you know, probably was one of the most influential modernists. He did a, did a lecture in the 1950s where he said that we have to put beauty on the same level as function. Otherwise, we will never be able to go back to do good work. And so that, I think, has been sadly quite forgotten. And as you go on and as you go on designing and as you reach the function, uh, think how now, how can I preserve the function? How can I make, keep it just as functional as it is? But now, how can I make this more beautiful? How can I push this to be much more beautiful? And I think that if you do that, the end result will be a piece that will be much more functional, that whose functionality will be incredibly increased because beauty in all of its ways is a function. Be, and as I can give you many examples, a, anything that is beautiful, we preserve it much more. It's, uh, it has an incredible long liberty. The, uh, Pantheon that I mentioned before is the only building in the world that has been in, that has been functional, has been used without interruption for 2000 years. And the reason for that is because of its exceptional beauty, because every generation and, you know, 2000 uh, years, 20 years a generation, that is a hundred generations, a hundred generations of humans appreciated the beauty so much of the of the pantheon that they didn't that they always repaired it and didn't rip it down actually i think uh the the copper roof was ripped down uh to build the uh the to build the altar for saint peter's uh, uh cathedral in rome but the rest of it is still standing proudly today so uh i think that's my uh, most urgent piece of advice that's great. And in addition, I also believe that you have a very developed intuition to know which decision is good or not. And you have to do it very quickly in a daily basis. Well, I think that uh, the intuition does become more reliable with experience. Um, but sometimes I'm still wrong, so it's it's definitely not <laughs> a fail-safe thing, sadly. But uh, I've been, you know, I've been working as a designer, meaning I've published or I've printed my first pieces when I was 
14 or 15 years old. I'm now 59, so I've been a designer for a very, very long time. And of course, as, when I was a young designer, I was much more insecure about certain decisions. I try to preserve some of that insecurity because I'm also aware that being too sure of yourself and what you're doing can be its own pitfall. But uh, sometimes the intuition definitely works and, you know, specifically uh, during the time when I still worked with regular commercial clients, uh, you definitely have a get a sense, you might even just call it a common sense, of what will work and what won't. And this is, uh, some of this is experience-based. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to, to be in the middle of uh, Stefan and Jessica by being both a cathedral and a factory. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I think that uh, that's, a healthy, that's a healthy spot to be. Uh, I am incredibly impressed and interested in the designers who are on the factory side because I think it needs that side, the factory side, doesn't matter, or the commercial side, that tends to be the side that influences the look of the world more than the cathedral side because it, there is much more of it, there's much more need for it. And so it's incredibly important that designers who love design and who care uh, are involved in that world because that's ultimately the world that influences the next generation in its look and its feel. I would love to discuss about uh, your Instagram account that is very special with a very particular uh, red line that follows every post because you are uh, making some reviews on designs and objects from people all around the planet. Well, that really, it uh, was influenced by actually a French artist who lived in New York, Louise Bourgeois, who was generous enough to allow 10 artists or designers, mostly artists, come to her place every Sunday. And I was one of those people and she was ruthless in her critique. You had to bring your book and uh, uh, she, you know, told you what she thought about it. I thought I was very influenced by that and did that in the studio for many, many years. And then, of course, that became uh, very difficult to do first be because of my travel schedule and then because of COVID. So I think three or four years ago, I started doing these, uh, putting these uh, critiques uh, on my Instagram account. And you can follow that. It's under my name, Stefan Sagmeister, at Stefan Sagmeister with an F. And I review a piece that uh, designers, as you say, from around the world are sending, are sending in. And I try to review them with the best interest of the piece and of the designer in mind. So I'm not interested in being cynical. I'm not interested in putting somebody down. And it's what is lovely. What is the loveliest discovery for me is that if I try that, then all the other comments are 
basically sticking with that like and it's it's really become almost a group effort because of course i give my two cents in the very beginning and that's you know it's probably the most prominent one in there but then there is sometimes i mean there's a minimum of a dozen or two but there are sometimes hundreds of other comments that are also quite kind and mostly trying to make the piece at hand to improve that. Uh, I don't agree with all of the improvement ideas. That, of course, is up to the designer who sent the thing in to decide which of those uh, tips he wants, he or she wants to uh, incorporate or not. But it's been a, a very, I don't know, a very pleasant experience. And uh, for me, there is just uh, within the world, within the online world, I, mean, I would think specifically on Twitter, there's just so much cynicism and snark and sort of, I mean, part of the meme world is also in that world. It's like, I actually, I can be quite a fan of cynical thinking but it's not the best of me. And I can take it in small doses. In, I think online, <laughs> there is so much of it that I feel absolutely no impulse to add to that. And uh, uh, I'm very, very glad that my own account is almost completely free of it. With this generous initiative, I believe that this is very different from your French counterpart because you are doing this in front of uh, 400,000 people. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, of course, it's, it developed and uh, of course you had to adjust it all because uh, Louise uh, uh, was quite brutal and she of course could be quite brutal because it was a small group of people I think the maximum was 10 and everything stayed within that room if you do it in a public forum uh, 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 it had to be adjusted but uh, nevertheless I think that it probably would have never come to it would have never seen the light of day without her fantastic example Stefan Sackmeister Thank you so much for sharing all of these experiences. It was really interesting. Uh, it was a pleasure. Uh, absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, having me on your podcast. Uh, I really appreciate it. <laughs>